Now, today we're thinking about contentment. And contentment is uh, a bit of a word that when I heard it, um, it's a bit hard to know exactly what it means, contentment. The Macquarie Dictionary defines it like this, having your desires limited to what you have or not wishing for more. In other words, if you have what you want, then you can describe yourself as content. But if you want more, then you're discontent, you want more. Now, in the Bible, the word content means exactly that, having enough. So I thought we'd begin this morning by just looking at a few places in the Bible that that word comes up, just to give a bit of a feel of what contentment means before we jump into 1 Timothy. So firstly, um, where's the remote? Um, I've put them on the overhead so that um, you don't have to go looking them up. In Luke 3, Jesus is talking to some soldiers and um, this is what they say to him and this is what Jesus says back. Some soldiers asked Jesus, what should we do? And Jesus replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. In other words, Jesus says to these soldiers, be content with your wages. See the idea? It's pretty simple, isn't it? You get paid enough, you don't need more. Be, be happy with what you get. Uh, in John 6, um, Jesus is up on the mountain with 5,000 people and there's no food. Um, he's just about to do a miracle where he feeds them all. But Philip says to Jesus, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And that word, not enough, it's the same word. They couldn't be content with that, with that little bread. If we fed them, even if we had eight months' wages worth of bread, they'd want more. Okay, Contentment is just having enough. Uh, in John 14, Philip says to Jesus, same fellow Philip, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. In other words, he's saying, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Show us the Father and we'll be content. That'll be enough. Um, in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, um, Paul has a problem we don't know what it is, but he calls it um, a thorn in his flesh. It's a real pain to him. Um, and three times, he says, he prayed to God that God would remove this problem from him. And God said in verse 9, uh, verse 9, God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that word sufficient, that's the thing. It's enough. Paul you don't need this problem to be taken away from you because my grace, my generosity to you, that's enough. You can put up with this other thing. Now, there's a couple of other verses on your outline and you want, might want to look them up later. But basically, I just want you to get a feel for what contentment means. Contentment is just being able to say, I don't need any more than what, what I have. I have enough. Now, that's not the way we think in our culture, is it? I was recently um, reading this book uh, last year called Growth Fetish. It's not a Christian book. It's got by an economist from the Australian National University, Clive Hamilton, and he's writing a book about contentment in our society. And he says our whole economy is based on keeping people discontent. I'll just read you a little section from there. Advertising long ago discarded the practice of selling a product on the merits of its useful features... Modern marketing builds symbolic associations between the product and the psychological states of potential customers, that's us, sometimes targeting known feelings of inadequacy, 
or aspiration or expectation and sometimes setting out to create a sense of inadequacy in order to remedy it with the product. In other words, want to make us feel discontent so we'll buy what they're selling. All aspects of human psychology, our fears, our sources of shame, our sexuality, our spiritual yearnings, they are all a treasure house to be plundered in search for a commercial edge. And he concludes a few pages on, what is the impact of the tyranny of brands on those whose lives are governed by them? It is to reinforce the insidious sense that something is missing, to create the conditions for serial disappointment, yet to sustain hope that more of what has so far failed will ultimately succeed. In other words, people buy things to try and make themselves content, so we need an advertising interest industry to keep us discontent so that we'll want to buy more. That's how it works. So the ads you see on TV, the things you read in magazines, they are deliberately trying to make you discontent. You don't have enough. You need to buy more. You won't be happy unless you have more. Now, the Bible has a very different view. It teaches that if you're a Christian, okay, if you've been forgiven by God and you're one of his children, then you already have all that you need. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. This is the last passage that we'll look at before we actually get into um, the last one that you need to open your Bibles to before we get to 1 Timothy. So keep your finger in 1 Timothy, but have a look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul is uh, writing to this Philippian church who are partners with him. They support him financially and they've given him a gift, some money. They've helped him out in verse 10. And he's thanking them for their help in this letter. But he says uh, in the same breath as he's thanking them, he says in verse 11, Thank you for your money, but I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. See, Paul there can say that he can be content whatever circumstance he's in. He's learnt to be able to say, I have enough, even when he doesn't have enough. Look at verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in every and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. See, Paul's uh, been in plenty of situations in his life where he was hungry and he was shipwrecked and he didn't have a house and he didn't have clothes. He knows what it is to be in need. He also knows what it is to, have, to be in plenty, to have all that he needs. But what he says, he's learnt the secret of having enough even when he doesn't have enough. That's what Christian contentment is. When you have plenty... You can say, I have enough. But when you're in need, you can still say, I have enough. Whatever your situation in life, you can honestly say, what God has given me now is exactly what God knows is best for me. I don't need anything else. Did you notice Paul says that he's learnt the secret of being content? He's learnt it. It's not automatic. It's not just you become a Christian and suddenly you're content. I reckon for most of my life, even as a Christian, I was discontent. 
At primary school, I wasn't happy. I just wanted to be at high school. At high school, I wasn't happy. I wanted to go to Sydney and be at uni. When I was at uni, I just couldn't wait to be out working because then life would be so much better. When I was single, I wanted to be married because then life would be better. Always wanting more. I wanted a better computer. I wanted a bigger guitar. I wanted a bigger guitar amplifier. 100 watts wasn't enough. Ecclesiastes says, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. See, the very thing that you think that if you have it, that will make me content, when it comes, you're not content. You want more. Somewhere in there, I learnt contentment. It's not some, contentment's not something that you can muster up by yourself. Paul calls it a secret that you have to learn. It's, it's something that you don't know, but then you learn it. As you come to understand the gospel... As you come to realize that God has been very generous to you, as you come to appreciate all the fullness of the gospel and the implications of it, you start to learn the secret of being content. In Romans 8.32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Now, that's just the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God died for our sins. That was our biggest need, to be forgiven. And to meet that need, God gave up his own son for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if God has done that for us, in Romans 8.32, Paul says, how will he not also give us everything else we need? If he did that at the cost of his son, surely won't he give us everything else that we need? As a Christian, God promises that he will graciously give you all things. As a Christian, God promises that he will work out everything for your good, Romans 8.28. And as you come to understand that God is actually in control of everything, and as you bring all those truths of the Bible to bear on your own life, well, then you begin to learn the secret of contentment. The Bible leads us to that conclusion. What you have right now is exactly what God wants you to have. He's in control. And contentment is accepting that God knows what's best for you. And that's why Paul can say, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. If you really believe that God is in control and he is working things out for your good, then you, you have to come to the conclusion that what you have right now is enough. Now, do you trust God on that one? Do you really actually believe that God knows how to work things out the best way for your good? Or maybe, maybe he doesn't. Maybe you know better. Maybe God doesn't realise that you, you actually need an extra room on the house. Maybe God doesn't realise that you need to be healed. Maybe God doesn't realise that you need a pay rise. Maybe God's holding back something good from you because he's stingy. Or could it be that God actually knows what he's doing and you don't need more? And that's why he hasn't given it to you and you need to learn to be content. Contentment's not being forced to grin and bear it and pretend it's okay, but really you're convinced that you do need more. Contentment is being fully persuaded that God is able to do what he promised 
And having promised that he is working things out for the good of those who love Jesus, contentment is being convinced that whatever your circumstances, that is exactly what God is doing, working things out for your good. I've been reading another book recently. Uh, From the 1600s, there was a fellow called Richard Baxter. He was a pastor. Um, I'm learning lots from him. But one of the things I was encouraged by was his attitude to his poor health. This is contentment. Uh, He says, um, well, this is a biography about him. His ailments were many, measles, smallpox, catarrh, which I don't even know what that is, coughs, indigestion, insomnia, hemorrhages, rheumatism, fears fears of consumption, yeah, had all left their mark before he was 20. And he continued all his life to be plagued with tumours, lameness, headaches, and what he called vertiginous, yeah, something to do with vertigo, or stupefying conquests of my brain. He's even got things that I don't know what they are. But he was never melancholy and seems to have hit upon a combination of dieting and exercise which kept him active, for well over half a century following his youthful fear of death. Indeed, he regarded his ill health as a particular blessing because his weakness made him live and preach in some continual expectation of death. He says, I found this sickness through my life to be an invaluable mercy for me. It made me study and preach things necessary and a little stirred up my sluggish heart to speak to sinners with some compassion as a dying man to dying men. And he goes on to say that he regarded his singleness as a blessing because it gave him more time for the gospel. He regarded his time in jail as a blessing because it allowed him to write and up till then he was too busy to write and in jail he had some solitude. Now, that is contentment. That whatever God brings your way, you count it as a blessing because you do know that he's got what is best for you at heart. Now, can you say that? Right now, can you say, I have enough? Because if you can, that is a great place to be. Now, in 1 Timothy, Paul deals with one particular area of contentment, and that is financial contentment, which I think is a big one for us. But contentment covers a lot of areas, health, finance, work, education, uh, whether you're content with your family, uh, whether you're content with your marriage, on it goes. We're not looking at any of those today. We could spend the whole morning looking at at contentment, but what, what Timothy looks at, is one specific area, financial contentment. So let's pick it up in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 5. In uh, verses 3 to 5, Paul's talking about false teachers. We'll come back and look at that next week. But pick it, we'll pick it up in verse 5. Constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and think that godliness is a means to financial gain. What that is about is there were people in the church where Timothy was who were trying to use godliness as a means of financial gain to make money. Now, there's lots of jobs where it's okay to be in it for financial gain. I mean, if you're down at Macca's and you're working the deep fryer all day and I asked you, why do you do it? And you said, well, I'm in it because I just love sitting in front of an oily, hot, deep fryer and having it spit all over me and coming home greasy. Maybe there's something wrong with you at that point. But if you say, I'm in it for the money, you know, just to earn a bit of extra cash, well, you know, that's okay. 
That's why they're paying you to do it, because no one else wants to do it. It's okay to be in it for the money. But when it comes to working in the church, it's different. Godliness is not a means to financial gain. You cannot be a leader in the church and be doing it to make money. You should be paid. We saw that last week. But that is not why you do it. Godliness and making money don't mix. Godliness is not a means to financial gain. He's talking there to the corrupt leaders who were trying to make money from from their um, leadership in the church. But in verse 6, he actually turns to address everyone. And he says, well, actually, godliness is a means to gain. Godliness is a means to great gain, but not financial gain. There's riches that godliness will lead to that is better than financial gain. True riches, riches of being godly. Look at verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. See, combine godliness with the attitude of having enough, and that is great gain. Which I think you might lead you to the question, how much is enough? Godliness plus what? Godliness plus enough is great gain, but what is enough? Is it godliness plus a house? Is it godliness plus $1,000 in the bank? How much is enough that I can be godly and have it and have great gain? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 7. We bought nothing into this world. We can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. How much is enough? Well, food and clothes is enough. In other words, everyone in this room has enough. We have more than enough. In fact, back in Philippians, the one we read, Paul even goes one step further to say he has learnt to have enough even when he doesn't have food, when he's hungry. And in 1 Corinthians 11, he says he even had enough when he was naked. Godliness with enough is great gain. And how much is enough? Well, what you have is enough. But sadly for some people, what they have is not enough. And so they combine godliness with not having enough. Godliness with wanting more. And that is a disaster. Look at verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now firstly notice that this verse is talking about Christians. These verses are talking about followers of Jesus for whom godliness alone isn't enough. Followers of Jesus who were discontent followers of Jesus who wanted to get rich. If you ask these people, do you want to be rich? They they wouldn't say, I'm happy with what I've got. They would say, yes, I'd like to be rich. I'd love to have more money. And Paul says, godliness and wanting to be rich don't mix. If you combine godliness with a desire to be rich, you have fallen into temptation and a snare. Paul is deliberately using strong language here. Don't be fooled. 
don't think that you can desire godliness and then at the same time desire material wealth and get away with it. The desire to be rich is like a big lump of cheese on a rat trap. It sucks you in and you don't see the trap before it's too late. It's a snare, Paul says. In Philippians, Paul was showing us, and I'd love to just be able to um, look at Philippians one day, Paul was showing us how wonderful contentment is. But here, Paul is doing something different. He's not showing us how wonderful contentment is. He's showing us the other side of the coin. How dangerous it is not to be content. Not being content leads to all sorts of problems, all sorts of mess, all sorts of pain. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Godliness with contentment brings great joy. But godliness mixed with wanting more money brings grief and sorrow. So there's some trials in this life we can't help. They just happen to us for no reason, for nothing at all we've done wrong, and we need to learn to be content with them. But there's some trials that are self-inflicted because of our desire for more. If we make decisions based on discontentment, if we make decisions based on our desire for more, we're setting ourselves up for trouble. A family doesn't have enough money. The husband decides to work longer hours. If you make that decision out of discontentment, you are heading straight for more problems. A family doesn't have enough money. The wife decides to work. Now, if you make that decision out of discontentment, it's a temptation and a trap and a foolish decision. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying, and the Bible's not saying, it's wrong to work longer hours, and it's not saying it's wrong for a wife to work. For the right reasons, it's a good godly decision hard work is good we saw that last week godliness with contentment is great gain but if you make those decisions because you are discontent if you think that your life will be better off if you have more you've already been fooled it's a trap it's a snare it's a door to great pain uh, there's a uh, another book I've been reading this week called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment from the 1600s. This is what uh, the author says. If you want a contented life, don't grasp too much of the world. For if a man goes among thorns, when he may take a simpler way, he has no reason to complain that he's pricked by them. If men and women will thrust themselves on the things of the world which they do not need, then no wonder that they are pricked and meet with what disturbs them. That's verse 10. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So this passage is not about people who've left godliness behind, left Jesus behind to chase money. These are Christians who wanted to be godly, but with their godliness they wanted to combine being rich this passage is aimed at christians who want to have the best of both worlds genuinely on the one hand they want to be godly yet in the other hand they want more money they want a bigger house they want a better car 
Now, maybe that's you. Maybe you are striving for godliness. You want to be like Jesus, but financially, you want more. You're not content. Is there anything wrong with that? Well, this passage is a warning. You cannot love both God and money. Do you want to be rich? If you do, the devil's snare is already around your feet. Did you ever even notice it? Or did he put it over you so gently that you put up no resistance? Maybe you even found it comfortable, attractive. How long has his trap been there? Maybe already you are starting to be pierced by some of its griefs. Well, let me warn you, that's just the start. It will plunge you into ruin and destruction. See, godliness with contentment is great gain. But mix godliness with a desire for money, you get a destructive cocktail that will destroy you if you drink it. So my prayer this morning as you leave here, if you don't already have it, that you will learn the secret of being content. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in Jesus, through his death and resurrection, and when we trust in him, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And you have showered on us with your great generosity everything we need. And Father, thank you that you not only give us everything that we need in this life, enough to be content, but that you have stored up for us in heaven riches beyond our wildest dreams. Father, how terrible that we could think that we don't have enough. Father, please forgive us for our discontentment when we doubt your goodness and we want more than what you give us. Please help us to so much marvel at the gospel and your goodness to us that we are fully satisfied with that. And Father, if there's um, areas in our life where we are being discontent and we are wanting more than just godliness, please help us to repent of those things before they take us to ruin and destruction. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.